Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Indonesia's 2019 election is now behind us. And while we do not yet have the official results from the General Election Commission by the time this podcast goes online, we do, of course, have quick count results from a number of reputable polling institutes. And these quick counts show very clearly that incumbent President Jokowi has won a second term, defeating his challenger Prabowo Subianto by a margin of probably around 8, 9, 10 percent. We'll have to wait for the final results to know exactly. Meanwhile, in the legislative election, all parties that currently have seats in the House of Representatives, except the Hanura Party, are said to have cleared the 4% threshold, including the conservative religious parties PKS, the Prosperous Justice Party, PAN, the National Mandate Party, and PPP, the United Development Party. In today's podcast, we talk about a particular group of supporters and candidates from these conservative parties, namely women who have become politically active because they are concerned about what they perceive as threats against traditional morality and religious values. Some of these women have joined political parties and ran for office in the April election, while others have chosen different avenues for their activism. So who are these women? Who are the women at the forefront of this new wave of conservative female activism? What motivates them and what are their main aims and strategies? How does their increased sense of agency relate to broader trends of growing religious conservatism in Indonesia? Joining me for today's podcast to discuss these and other questions is Dia Ayu Kartika, a researcher at the Center for the Study of Religion and Democracy, Pusat Paramadina in Jakarta, and currently a correspondent fellow for New Mandala, the well-known website covering social and political developments in Southeast Asia. Kathy, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so the election is over now, and everyone except Prabowo Subianto himself and some of his diehard supporters seem to have accepted the quick count results provided by the pollsters. So as I mentioned in the introduction, the results show not only that Prabowo, the candidate who was supported by some of Indonesia's most notorious Islamist groups, lost the presidential election, but also that the bloc of conservative Islamic parties has not increased its vote share. Compared to the 2014 election, PKS won about 2%. PPP and PAN lost around 2 and 1% respectively. So that more or less cancels out PKS's gains. So all parties that competed in the election were required by law to nominate at least 30% female candidates. And thanks in part to this regulation, the number of female candidates in this election was bigger than ever. Turning to your research now, during the campaign, you joined some female candidates whose agenda seems to be quite opposed to the aims of women's rights activists in a sort of conventional sense. Can you tell us a bit about these candidates that you observed and whom you um, accompanied on the campaign trail, starting perhaps by outlining whether there is some kind of common pattern that has prompted these women to run for a seat in parliament? Okay, thank you, Dirk. So I particularly followed three female candidates or chalek in this election. 
The first one is uh, Umi Aziza. Uh, she is PKS candidate for House of Parliament from West Java. Uh, she's actually the wife of former Depok Mayor, uh, Nur Mahmudi Ismail, mm-hmm. and also um, the female preacher and board of Majelis Taklim Network in Depok, one of the big one in Depok. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is Umi Fira. She is also a PKS candidate for provincial parliament from East Jakarta. Uh, she is also the female preacher. She has been working in grassroots level for like 25 years. And she also the member of Family Love Alliance. And the third one is Umi Fitria, Triani Abdul Aziz. She is PBB candidate from the Crescent Star Party for House of Parliament. And she is from Jakarta. I think she's uh, have been working in the Malaysia. That's why she's also gaining food from overseas. And she's the vice head of women's wing of Dewan Dakwah Islamia, hmm. or Indonesia Islamic Propagation Council, a long-standing Islamic organization who has known uh, as having scripturally rigid position on Islamic creed. And all these candidates are mainly driven with one factor to join the politics, which is moral issue. They see the widespread of HIV, AIDS, abortion, and premarital sex. Also, the prominent existence of LGBTQ community are seen as the moral crisis from the candidates. Of course, this is not a new narrative coming from the conservative group. Maybe we have seen it 10 or 15 years ago, but the growing identity politics and political Islam have strengthened their position in the society. Uh, it has activated women's political agency along conservative lines that mothers must mobilize in order to protect their children from moral threat, and they believe that Islam has offers the right, all the right solution for these social ills. Unfortunately for them, Islamic perspectives are readily used as solution in the political sphere. Policymakers and law enforcers mainly use liberal or secular perspective on addressing these problems. Therefore, they feel the need to be in politics to make greater impact in the policymaking process. Mm, okay. So, and you, you said um, those three, they have all been already religiously active before they now joined the elections. Obviously, then they have a, a bit of history of um, religious activism. And those motivations to put this into a political career, these motivations aside, um, do these candidates share some common characteristics in terms of age or socioeconomic background, educational background, or do they come from all sorts of different um, layers of society? Yeah, um, most of them are middle-aged women coming from middle upper class uh, with high education from reputable university in Indonesia. And they're also an active member or, or, or leaders in their community and engage well with people in grassroots level through social activities, some women empowerment programs, and also Majlis Taklim, of course. And you said two of them uh, ran for the PKS and one for the Crescent Star Party, the PBB, one of the very small parties. So... Is it, was this a deliberate choice? Obviously, these are the most or some of the most conservative uh, Islamic parties that we have. Uh, but in the past, a lot mm. of, a lot has been written about the fact that um, s- more secular parties, or on paper, more secular parties, also often recruit religiously conservative candidates in order to enhance mm. their chances of electoral success. So, from the mm. c- candidates' perspective, was this a, a clear, deliberate choice that they would go to? PKS and PBB? Yeah, so yeah, mostly uh, they're coming from PKS, right? But 
to say that it's like their choice because uh, most of them uh, has been PKS cadres for uh, several years. They've been involved in PKS uh, mentorship since uh, in the university. So and they think that they are not being the PKS. Uh, they're not go for PKS candidate, but they just being PKS cadre in which they will be chosen to be uh, one of the candidates. So it's not like they are have the ambition to be uh, a candidate uh, in legislatives, but they, the, the party seeing them as potential, that's why they chose them. That's what they claim to me, or they, they uh, say to me. But for the candidate in the PBB party, the Unifitria, she, uh, she chose the party herself, so it's all with her understanding about the political uh, situation uh, that he chose uh, PBB, and he said, and she said it is because the roots of PBB is actually people that she respect. So there's a lot of we cannot say it's only one reason or one factor that motivates these female candidates to join a party. There are numbers of them, but yeah, there are actually two kind of things. The first one, they are part of the party categorization, and the second one, they can just choose it with their own uh, understanding. Mm. Or, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, well, PKS is well known for its uh, categorization system. It's one of the parties in Indonesia with arguably the best recruitment system for candidates. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know something about the numbers? Um, like how many female candidates were nominated by those religious parties? Yeah. The number of women candidates from PKS is 39.4%, which is 112 from 538 talent. And for the PPP is 41.2%. Percent, oh, okay. and for PAN is 37.9%. Okay. So, PVP has the highest number amongst three. Mm. And that is quite high given that 30% yeah. was the requirement yeah. only. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Exactly. Hmm. So, you said you followed three women during the campaign quite closely and observed the campaign and try to contextualize their activities more broadly in what's happening in Indonesia. So can you tell us a little bit about their strategies to win over voters? So you said before they already had quite a reputation as preachers, um, so they were quite well known in their community. Did they consistently emphasize this this kind of re religious credentials that they had during their campaign? Yeah. So yeah, they're mainly using two campaigns channels to spread their influence, right? The first one is social media and Majlis Taklim or the regular meeting Islamic study circle in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they understand that uh, women voters, uh, their, their potential voters, have more limited mobility due to, you know, being a mother, being a wife, they have to do the household, domestic courts. So uh, they have a very limited mobility to access information from outside world. So they use social media, uh, particularly for this one. Uh, like Umi Fitria from BBB, from the Crescent Star Party, she is also the, because she is also a woman, she also feels that she needs to take care of the household. Uh, so she mainly used uh, social media as her uh, strategy 
she spread the pamphlet or her posters uh, online, giving lectures in YouTube, and also write a blog post about how he would uh, go if she's being uh, if she's elected as the uh, legislator. And Umifira also said to me that uh, social media platforms such as WhatsApp have gave, uh, gave access to women to be more politically active because they don't have that access before to get the information. So they mainly use uh, social media in this respect to engage with their potential voters. Another thing is the Majlis Taklim uh, because uh, it is being held in the neighborhood in which women or mothers usually feel that they need some uh, spiritual lectures from preachers or a guidance to educate their child. So it's more like a parenting issues, also uh, how to educate their uh, your children that usually convey during the during the spiritual lectures or during the majlis taklim. So the participation of these women in the election seems to fit into a broader trend of growing Islamic conservatism and activism from these um, conservatives in Indonesia. Um, how do you explain the increasing prominence of women in conservative movements and organizations in Indonesia? Yeah, this is very interesting because I think this is what differs today's conservative movement to the previous one. Uh, because women become more active in this anti-feminist movement within and outside the system. And they also can claim that they are representing women's voices because yeah, they are women. The group that are now raising or being the focus of attention on this conservative movement is AILA, actually, or the Family Love Alliance. And it was founded in 2013 by a number of Islamist organizations, uh, including the Council of Muslim Intellectuals, Muslimah, Community for Islamic Studies and Insist, or Institute for the Study of Islamic Thought and Civilization. And maybe we can say that they become the think tank for this conservative movement to do the advocacy in policy, in the parliament, Mm -hmm. and in the public discourse. And AILA is like a joint group or alliance. There are numbers of uh, organizations inside AILA which also advocate for this conservative movement. And yeah, they also understand uh, feminist concept really, really well. And sometimes cite some feminists, well-known feminists, such as the Bufa, Betty Frida and Julia Kristeva, and also criticize it uh, using Islamic perspective. So this is very interesting because uh, for this one, and I mean, like this strategy has never been used before in previous conservative movement. And for the policy, during the policy advocacy, they also back with uh, multidisciplinary intellectuals. So they have a very good uh, strategy to pursue their goals. And they also expand their influence to the younger generation, particularly younger using social media. They adapted to the social media and we witnessed just recently the viral Instagram account of Indonesia Without Feminism as one of many conservative campaigns. We also know about Indonesia Without Dating, Ayo Poligami, or Pemuda Hijra. All these uh, conservative campaigns actually uh, stems from this narrative or this argument produced by intellectuals in the AILA or, or in the Family Love Alliance. So I think this is a very a systematic campaign against uh, feminism. Mm. So you mentioned AILA, the Family Love Alliance, as the 
organization that organizes or initiates many of these activities. Is ILA run only by women or is it a mix between women and men? Or is it specifically yeah. quite so, deliberately a women's organization? It's predominantly women's uh, organization, actually. But the head of ILA, uh, or the head of ILA is actually a woman, uh, Rita Subagio. But the advisor of ILA is Bahtiar Nasir. He's a Salafi leader, also influenced in, uh, very influential in the Tuantu movement in 2017 but for the Ayla itself predominantly women hmm, okay well that's remarkable and quite different from the conservative Islamic parties if you yeah. lo look at PKS or PPP they are still largely dominated by men at least the leadership positions at the top um, is this male dominance of these larger organizations, is that widely accepted amongst these women activists? Or are they actually aspiring to higher office in these parties as well? Is Isla perhaps mainly a stepping stone for a career in a political party later on as well? I don't see it that way. I don't see it like a stepping stone because they also have been like really involved in social uh, activities before and they not really have the ambition to be the legislatives, uh, legislators. They just want to uphold the Islamic perspective or Islamic law, and they think that it is important. Uh, and therefore, they want to criticize all this influence from Western culture in Indonesia by advocating for policy. Yeah, one of the key battlegrounds where Ayla and other conservative activists are currently focusing on um, is the anti-sexual violence bill that was deliberated in Parliament just before the elections and is likely to come to the fore again very soon. Can mm. you explain what this bill seeks to achieve and why Ayla and others are opposing it? Yeah, um, the anti-sexual violence law actually stipulates expanded definition of sexual violence. It includes uh, sexual harassment, forced abortion, and also customary harmful practices such as female genital mutilation and child marriage. It also addresses the prevention effort, like uh, education, comprehensive sexual education, and also uh, making infrastructure better for women. Uh, and then uh, it's also regulates the how to handle sexual violent cases and also the rehabilitation of victims of violence. And so far, there's there have no uh, comprehensive law that address these problems. Maybe we have domestic violence law, but it only regulates physical, psychological abuse in a household. So it's not enough to protect women outside the household from violence. Mm. And the conservative women address... Uh, more fundamental problem uh, in RU PKS in, in this anti-sexual violence law. Uh, they address the concept of gender equality and bodily autonomy because uh, for them, gender is clear. It's only women and men. And when we are talking, what when, when feminists are talking about gender, we also, uh, I mean, like the liberal feminists also put the transgender and LGBT community, community in it. And for them, it's not in line with Islamic law. And they also reject the bodily uh, autonomy as it perpetuates things that they say it's contrary to Islamic values such as premarital sex, legal abortion, and LGBT community. And their main issue in this 
RUPKS is the term gender-based violence itself uh, because it entails the problem of consent. And when we're talking about consent, it's not only between two person. Uh, so, so it it also entails premarital sex, same-sex relationship. While well, at the same time, a wife can sue her husband for conducting marital rape. So for them, it is disrupting the the foundation of families. That's why they are criticizing it. Mm, okay. What do you think are the prospects for the anti-sexual violence bill to actually be passed in Parliament? Um, do you think it will go through? How do you see the prospects now for this bill to become law? I think right now it's only PKS that reject the bill, right? So I really hope that it can be passed because only a party and I don't know, uh, I don't think that they will be like really influential to influence other party to join them and oppose the, the, the bill. So I think hopefully in August we can have this. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And beyond the fight for this very important bill to be passed into law, what else do Indonesian women rights activists need to do to confront this kind of conservative anti-feminist wave as you've described it before? I think the first thing is to have more inclusive narrative uh, because for this, for the conservative groups, uh, sometimes they uh, say that Feminist movement is for the elite only, uh, and they're not really going to the grassroots level. And I think that's 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 actually a good critique to feminism as well. Uh, the feminist doesn't like really work maybe in the same level as as these conservative groups. So I think on one hand we need to do that. We we need to our feminists need to address this issue of being like maybe too elite to using too high vocabularies, difficult vocabularies that no one really understands. Mm. So that's actually a good critique which can help to counter that. And also try to introduce a concept of gender and feminism in an easier way. You had spoken about the need for uh, progressive feminists to speak in more easily understandable language and um, connect better with the grassroots. That's actually one point, but it's, uh, it doesn't look really different with the uh, the first one is more on the how the feminists can uh, introduce the concept of gender and feminism. Because currently, if we try to search in Google uh, Indonesia gender and blah, 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 the first thing that comes up it is the This Is Gender uh, website, which actually comes from the, the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. And it's like really confusing for, for uh, young feminists to already or anyone who actually want to know about feminism, what actually it is. And they what they found is something that really opposing the real understanding of feminism itself. So mm. maybe right now we need to do more to, uh, or feminists need to do more to socialize or, or to introduce the concept of gender and feminism uh, for the public. Yeah. Do you think, maybe as a final question, do you think there can be common ground between progressive feminists and these conservative activists in terms of pushing forward female agency in politics? Or are you too far apart from each other to have this kind of common ground? 
Yeah, interestingly, it actually, for me, I think uh, they're not really that different. The person that I met, the Umi Fira, is actually quite moderate in say that they're, uh, that she is a conservative, but she's actually very moderate uh, because she go for, uh, she's actually saying that she go for women who work. I mean, he, she support women who work. Uh, she She's up for uh, more women in the education, uh, but it's, they're just only different in in the standpoint of understanding this issue. So, so I think there's actually a lot of common ground that we can maybe negotiate, but I don't know how far these two dots or these two groups can negotiate between the two because sometimes one of them like really, really rigid on their values, whereas we can actually always have space for negotiation so Mm. yeah we will see how that plays out in the final deliberations about the anti-sexual violence bill maybe there is an opportunity to negotiate to find to make some concessions but as you say perhaps more likely is to find common ground in areas outside of morality and family issues but more about issues like such as work or education etc Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much for these insights, Kathy. So that was Dia Ayukartika from Pusat Paramadina in Jakarta, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Starting with this episode, the Talking Indonesia podcast will return to its conventional fortnightly rhythm. So please join us again for the next episode on the 16th of May. Finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and till next time.